Okay, we're starting a new series today. Um, <clears throat> if you've been around me any time at all, then you know that my whole approach to the scripture uh, has, to be, has to involve redemption. That's the heart of our theology, okay? And so wherever I am in the Bible, it doesn't matter where. You can pick any verse, and what's going to happen is I'm going to fit it into the story. Because the biblical story is a long narrative with little subparts where God is redeeming. God is re- being redemptive, okay? And what that means just simply is he's fixing something that's broken. So if you, if you were to put the Bible in the order that it was written, in fact, if you haven't ever read the Bible through, I would encourage you to do it this year. If you've got a device, you can get a Bible app for free, okay? You can read it on there, and you can get a, a sequential Bible, which puts it in the order as best we can tell that it was written. There's a little bit of discrepancy, but for the most part, it follows a pattern. And here's what you find when you read it in historical order, is that every time uh, God keeps stepping into culture to fix something that's broken. And so once he fixes something broken back here, we never go back to it. <clears throat> we never return to this practice. So it's the story of him era after era fixing things that are broken in culture. Why are things broken in culture? Because of us, okay? God God didn't create the mess. We created the mess. So whenever God steps into our world, either through a spoken word, through a prophecy, through a vision, however he does it, when he speaks, steps into our world, he accomplishes three things. Number one is he begins to minimize or mitigate evil practices in the world, Number one. Number two, and this is a surprise for many of you, he introduces human dignity. Now, you grew up with it, so it seems natural, but it's not natural. If you go with me to all the third world, the developing nations that I go to, you will see that that dignity is not a part of their culture and their world. No other religion teaches on dignity. Christianity is the only one. It all, it all stems back to and rooted in 1500 B.C. when the Ten Commandments were given. And we begin to find out the story that God made us in his image. That's what it means to, be, uh, to have dignity. So when I teach, for example, in a Hindu nation, they don't even have the language for it. I have to create that uh, picture because they don't have the concept. It's not even present in their world. So, number one is he reduces evil practices. Number two is he introduces human dignity because we're made in his image and we're important. And number three is he points the direction that we should be going. C.S. Lewis argued decades ago that all of us have a moral compass. It's just broken. Can't find true north. It just can't. So, what you define as morality is largely been shaped by your culture here. Again, if you travel with me to some of the developing nations, they have a whole different value, moral set on what they consider right and wrong. Things that will be illegal here are legal over there, for example. And so, so what happens is there's no way to get that compass to work in a broken world. So when God steps in, he points the way to true north, and that compass begins to settle. Okay? So the Bible is the, the grand story, the narrative of us worshiping and serving a redemptive God who cares about this creation and everyone in it. Why? Because he made us. That's why. So for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at the minor prophets. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're not minor because they're not important. Okay, they're minor because they're small. The major prophets are big. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're big. The minor prophets are small. So don't think of them as less important. The major prophets deal with a much longer time frame and are covering a much broader perspective of theology. The minor prophets are dealing with specific issues in the nation. Okay, so everyone's looking at a different issue. So there are two, now let me back up and give you just a, a brief history lesson. In uh, 931 BC, Solomon, King Solomon died. He was a terrible leader. He was the wisest man on the earth and a terrible leader. Here's what we learn from Solomon's life. All the wisdom in the world is not enough. You need faith as well. So he did not finish well. He didn't finish well. He was taxing the poor people. He was conscripting them, enslaving them, if you will. He was doing all the things that the law said not to do. So he had a very unhappy, unhappy nation. And when he died, what happened? Immediately there's civil war. People don't like it. And so they divided right away into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom hung out around Jerusalem. Uh, That was the tribe primarily of Judah, David's tribe. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes in the north, and they wanted nothing to do with the southern kingdom. They had had enough. And so they went north, and they set up their own temples and worship centers. They set one at Dan up in the north part of the northern kingdom, and they set one in uh, Bethel at the southern part, okay, uh, which is really ironic because Bethel, Beit El, house of God, and they set up their own golden worship center there. And so the northern kingdom immediately began to apostatize and move away from the teachings of the Mosaic law and what God desired. So by this time, that's in 931. So Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. That's called Israel, by the way. So we're going to have to make sure we clarify the terms. The northern kingdom is now called Israel and the southern kingdom is now called Judah. Those are the two kings. So Jeroboam immediately led them into these horrible, horrible practices, which they never moved away from in the northern kingdom. They moved away from the Lord. They wanted nothing to do with Jerusalem, the tribe of David, and all of that because of what they'd experienced under Solomon. 150 years go by, and God sends the first prophet, Amos, who we're going to talk about in just a minute. There were prophets before Amos, um, Elijah, Elisha, They went to the northern kingdom. They just didn't write anything down. So Amos is the first written prophet, so we can study and see what we learn. So the very first thing we learn is God is very patient. It's 150 years after they departed before he sends a prophet like Amos to begin the stern warning. If you've ever read any of the minor prophets, they're filled with this, right? They're not fun to read, are they? So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to pay close attention to who this language is written to. Now, each of the prophets, you can't think of them as Amos walks into Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam 2, by the way. It's another Jeroboam 150 years later. He doesn't walk into Jeroboam, the king, and says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? It doesn't happen that way. So the prophets are actually a collection of their prophecies over some years. So, So Amos has several prophecies that are collected over several years, put together. Which is really awesome because we can learn a lot by noting the transitions, how the message develops. And we're gonna show you a little bit of that today. We're gonna learn that God is very patient. It's one of the first lessons we're gonna learn. 
I believe in a redemptive God, and I see God's redemption everywhere I am. One of the lessons I've learned from a study of the major prophets, minor prophets, historical literature, the gospel, all of it, one of the things I've learned is that God never gives up. He just doesn't give up. He lets you give up. That's called dignity. Adam and Eve, uh, don't eat this one tree. Hmm. See what happens. He lets you decide. He never gives up. For those of you that have parents, that should be an encouragement to you. He never gives up on your children. For those of you that are grandparents, that should be even a deeper encouragement. He never gives up on your children. (laughs) Because as we become grandparents, we're watching our children do stupid things. Not our grandkids, they're perfect. The grandkids are perfect. It's the, parent, the kids that are the problem. I mean, you know the famous joke, right? If I'd only known how much fun it was, I just would have skipped the kids and gone straight to the grandkids. God never gives up. He doesn't. And we learned that. So when we lay Amos out in just a second, we're going to do a flyby. You're going to see God's, how he, how he works with the rebellious. And then woven throughout each of the prophets, <clears throat> we're going to see this thread of the remnant the righteous. We're going to see it. And it is a remnant. You may remember Elijah. He got really tired. And Ahab and Jezebel are chasing him around to kill him. And he finally says, I've had enough, God. I'm the only person that believes in you. So God lets him rest and sleep by the brook. And then God says, actually, there's 7,000. 7,000 is not many in a nation. When Jesus said, narrow is the way, few there are that find it, well, that's not a joke. That's reality. And so he says, there's actually 7,000. You just don't know who they are. And so that little remnant in each of these prophets, which is going to end up being you, by the way, we're going to be talking to you, in the midst of all of this toward the rebellious, the evil, and the wicked, people, now we're going to have words of life. And that's who we are. Okay? So along, um, at this time in history, 150 years after Solomon, southern and northern kingdoms were both doing very well. Their prosperity is increasing. It's really growing. They're becoming wealthy. But what Amos is going to highlight is that their wealth came at the expense of the poor. Nothing new under the sun, folks, okay? It's the world we live in until Jesus comes back, every country, okay? Their wealth grew at the expense of the poor. So while they were declining morally, and I would say this has a lot of, these prophets have a lot to say about what's happening in our country today. As they were declining morally, right next door is another nation called Assyria. These were wicked people, brutal and cruel beyond your imagination, what they could conceive of to do to another human. They're watching this nation over here as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they think, look at that. There's a lot of wealth over there. We're bigger than them. We can take it. By the way, when you study the civilizations of the history of the world, 32 or whatever they are, guess what they all have in common? We're bigger than you. We're going to take what you have. We want your women. We want your children. We want your gold. We don't want you men. Okay? As soon as we capture you, you guys are done. But we want what you have. That's why what our forefathers called the American experiment was so powerful because we didn't frame it along the lines of, I want what you have. 
we started with the idea, now don't hear me, we're not perfect, we got a lot of skeletons in the closet and I'm good with that, okay, I understand it, but we started with a core DNA principle that we can create wealth, not accumulate others' wealth. But way back here, okay, now we're in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians are looking over there and going, look at that, boy, that's pretty nice over there, what they have, we want that. And so when God says, I decide which nation to raise up and I decide which nation to destroy, you see God's sovereignty at work. As this nation over here, Israel, is becoming more apostate, he lets this nation begin to grow because he has plans for this nation regarding this one. And you're going to see the early snapshots of that in Amos. So... Um, the Assyrians eventually came in and they took the northern kingdom and completely bankrupted it and destroyed it. It's gone. Never came back. The northern kingdom. And that was because of their sin and their rebellion to walk away from the Lord. It's a good lesson. We should always stay faithful. Always. You know, the elders asked me one time, why is it important that I remain apolitical up here? And I said, the answer is simple. We are the only institution on the earth that represents the kingdom to a fallen world. The moment I slide toward a Republican platform, I alienate my Democrats. The moment I slide toward a Democratic platform, I alienate my Republicans. I'm not interested in politics. I'm interested in the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. Okay, I have my own personal views like you do, and that's why I say go vote your conscience, all right? Just don't fight over it. Okay, go vote your conscience. <clears throat> run for school boards, run for town councils. We got several of those right here in the church, and I love it. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> but when we come together as a people of God, our primary concern is to not do what they did, to steer off course. Our primary concern is to stay faithful because our primary heartbeat is God's heartbeat, should be, and that we care about the people out here that don't know him. So I personally don't care what, how you're registered to vote. doesn't matter to me. You want to have fun, we'll have coffee, and you can tell me, you can make all your arguments that you want, and it, it'll be fun. But when we come together as a church, we have a responsibility to represent God to the nations, starting with our own. Okay, so Amos opens with this incredible, and these are not going to be up there. I'm just going to just show you a few of these. He opens with a survey of the surrounding nations. So it's pretty interesting. You see God's his patience right here. Because Amos is basically saying to Jeroboam the second, look at all the nations around you. Is this really what you want to be like? And he goes through a bunch, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Tyre. He says, they sold whole communities. They captured whole villages and sold them into slavery. Okay, the sex trade is nothing new, by the way. It's been around since the fall. Okay, and so this one nation, Tyre, is taking these groups and selling them into sexual slavery for money. Then you get down to Edom, and here they're slaughtering the women of the land. When they, That was unusual because in military conquest, when you take over another person, you usually keep the women and kill the men. Well, they're slaughtering the women. Okay, wow. Then you get down to Ammon. They're whipping open the pregnant women. When they take theirs, they walk into a village, say, oh, you have what I have? Boom. We don't want the pregnant women. We only want the virgins. So they're, they're ripping them open. This, this is, when I tell you this is a dark world back then, it was a very, very dark world. So he starts by saying, look at all these nations around you. That's where you guys are headed. Is that where you want? Is that where you want to go? So you can see God's patience right there. But then he starts out in chapter 3, verse 1. 
Hear this word, people of Israel. Remember, Israel's a northern kingdom. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. Okay, why Egypt? They all go back to Egypt. Why? Because that is where God rescued them from slavery, and that becomes the model for the rest of the Bible. But it's also where he made the covenant with them. If you obey me, out of all the people on the earth, you will be my prized possession. I will be your God, and you will be a holy nation. That's the covenant that is in operation for the rest of time. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 2. That's our covenant too. If we obey God, we are blessed. If we apostatize, we move away from God, we begin to disappear. People have said to me, the church isn't going to go away. It's Jesus' church. We'll tell that to the church in Europe. Birthplace of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Now you walk in. I lived there four years, Nancy. Now you walk in there and the cathedrals are empty. Less than 2% of the people go to church. They're now atheistic nations. Look what happened to Israel. They disappeared. God will let you go just like that. You turn your back on him. That was the whole argument of the Jews in Jerusalem, which we'll see in the later minor prophets. When, uh, when Jerusalem is surrounded by Babylon, they're going, God's not going to let Jerusalem fall. This is his temple. You know, we're safe. Boom. They disappeared. Don't ever believe it. God will never let this church die. Read the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. He's more than happy to pluck you right out, to pluck a church right out of his program. So it's our responsibility to never apostatize. So he takes them right back to there. And what does he say to them? You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. Why did he choose them for the rest of the earth? So what he said to Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all the nations. He chose Israel, not because they were better. He chose them so they'd reach all the other nations. And they refused. So who gets the more severe punishment? They do. Paul says they were privileged to have the truth given to them in the word of God. And they rejected it. So, he opens with a a picture of the surrounding nations, and this becomes the basis for his judgment, what happened at the covenant, and what happens now, what he promised. He promised at the covenant, let me say it more clearly, he promised as part of the covenant to take care of his people. He's not going to give up. People ask me all the time, why did he take so long? Why does he wait hundreds of years? Okay, You have to study sociology and anthropology anthropology to figure that one out. People groups don't move fast. We passed the Civil Rights Amendment in 1964, and we still don't have it figured out. I'm really hoping that this younger generation will figure it out, because we didn't. Oh, we've taken steps. Don't get me wrong. But, But it's not figured out yet. It's not. So God is never in a hurry. He doesn't push his people. He woos them. He's like, come on, come on. Follow me. Do this. Okay? He's not a dictator. That's not the way he works. And so he's not in a hurry here. So I'm just going to give you a sampling. You could read Amos. Um, uh, In fact, I I hope to put online how I'm going to talk through the Minor Prophets so that you can go ahead and read them if you want to. They're not very long. Read them ahead of time before we talk about them. So this is just a sampling, okay? Now, as we move through Amos, watch the progression. Because remember, these 
these messages are over time. And so he's showing us how these people are moving further and further away. In Amos chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Okay, no, wait a minute. Okay, he's a shepherd. He's talking about the women. You'll see in a minute. Okay, he just called you all cows. So there's nothing PC about this at all. Okay, he's a shepherd for crying out loud. Where do shepherds live? Away from community. God calls a shepherd to go deliver this message. He's the first prophet. You cows. (laughs) Wow. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. That's the That's the capital, if you will, of uh, the northern kingdom, Israel. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Okay, there's just a sampling right there. They're oppressing the poor. The men were too, by the way. It's not only the women. And he talks about that in another place too. Then you get over to chapter 5 in verse 11, and you see that they're extorting the poor. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Okay, therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted flush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Okay, Um, some things never change. This is the history of the world right in front of our eyes here. They're extorting the poor. They're ignoring justice and righteousness in chapter 6. Do horses run on uh, rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You know what we're going to learn from every prophet? God cares especially for the poor. They have his heart. All they have to do to cry out, and he exacts vengeance. It's everywhere. It's all they have to do. And that should be our heartbeat as well. It's for the poor. Do you know the average giving of a church outside its doors today is less than 1% now in the United States? When I got the package 10 years ago to look at this church to whether or not to submit my documents to apply, first thing I did was look at financial statements and over 20% went outside the doors. There's a church that matches what's important to me. And we're still maintaining that. Still reaching out. $100,000 through our benevolence fund last year. Over 100000 4,500 meals through our food bank. Praise the Lord. Missionaries all over the world. Praise God for that. Okay? The purpose of the Mosaic Law is that there would be no poor among you. That's the core purpose of the Mosaic Law. Okay? And that should be our heartbeat right there. So here they are ignoring justice, ignoring righteousness. What that means is they're abusing the poor. You go over to chapter 8 and verse 6, and you have a different thing. They're enslaving now the poor. They're buying the poor with silver, okay? The needy, they're buying for a pair of sandals. It's all they're worth. These people don't even need sandals. They're wealthy, and they're, and they're, they're buying the poor and enslaving them. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord says right in the next verse, which you don't have up there, I will never forget what they have done. I will never forget. You see, God's heartbeat is always toward the poor, always. The needy, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. So how does God respond to that? It's going to give you one verse because it captures the whole message of all the prophets, actually. Chapter 5, verse 4. 
This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Come turn here. Come back. Seek me. This is an invitation. Come this way. I will, you haven't gone too far. I will bless you. Okay, that's why I've said over and over again, if you, if you find yourself struggling with <coughs> fear, anxiety, whatever it is, shame, that just means you're a little too far from the Lord. That's all it means. Just come a little closer to the Lord and you begin to see that dissipate. Okay, that's the Lord's constant message. Come, it's an invitation. Leviticus 1, if any of you want to offer a sacrifice, it's an invitation, come. What did Jesus say? My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come. Okay, come. And so that's his message all through the prophets. That's all he says. So what's their response? You're not going to see this up there. I'm just going to read you real quickly snippets down here. God says, I I withheld rain from you. Um, People staggered from town to town for water. They were so thirsty. And yet you did not return to me. Many times I struck your gardens, your vineyards, destroyed them with blight and mildew, and yet you did not return to me. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt, and yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet you have not returned to me. You see the patience and grace of the Lord there? Can you detect that tender mercy going after his rebellious people time after time, giving them example, giving them opportunity after opportunity, and they still did not return? So God's response. Okay, now watch it as we move through the book because this is over a period of time. His response slowly says, okay, that's what you want. It's what you're going to get. You want to be gods in your own eyes? You want to abuse the poor? You go right ahead. And here's what's going to happen. Chapter 3, I'm going to just a survey. Chapter 3, verse 11. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is early in Amos. An enemy will overrun your land. Here's Assyria. Pull down your strongholds. Plunder your fortresses. Okay, his promise is that if they followed him, this would never happen. Deuteronomy. But then he turned around and says, but if you turn your back on me, this will happen. So I said, look at Europe today. Then you move on to verse 14. He's going to punish them. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. Remember, Bethel was the southern one between them and Jerusalem. I'll tear down those altars. Then you move on over to chapter 5. And he said he's going to destroy them. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Never to rise again. You move over to chapter 8. He's no longer going to even spare them. What do you see, Amos? He asks, a basket of fruit. Um, Amos has a lot of imagery. I really like it. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe. See the basket of fruits, ripe. The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. You can see how every step of the way, as we move further and further into the book, he's becoming harsher and harsher 
toward these evil, rebellious people. The final thing he says in chapter 9, verse 4, though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them, not for good, but for harm. That's the final step. They cross the line. And they're done. That's rough, isn't it? It's a harsh, harsh warning, isn't it? This is for the people that would never turn back and they just shook their fist at God every step of the way. Here's the good news. That's not you. Okay, that's not us. One more verse. He's talking about they're waiting for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is when God's going to step in and destroy everybody around them. What they didn't know was, and Amos told them, now the day of the Lord is your destruction, not theirs. In that day, this is uh, Amos 9, the very last chapter, I will restore David's fallen shelter. Remember, David's, Judah's down in Jerusalem. They're up here. They're split. They're fragmented. They're fractured. And he says, I'm going to restore it. Okay? I'll restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Okay. Now we jump over to Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. They're wrestling with, what do we do with the Gentiles? Do they have to obey the law? What do we do with them when they're coming into the church? And this is the passage they quote, okay? Um, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous things God had done among all the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, he has described um, to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name among the Gentiles. Three chapters earlier, God went to Cornelius and Peter was there. They had to wrestle through what the Gentiles are included? Wow, we're watching the end of the era of history because at the end of time, the Gentiles are gonna come in. That's why Paul can say, we're in the final days. Wow, we're watching this happen. But now we have to decide what to expect from them. Okay, so James stood up and he said, listen to me. Okay, Simon has told us about this. The words of the prophets are in agreement with what's happened with Cornelius and the Gentiles coming into the church. And he quotes Amos, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tents. Its ruins, will, I will rebuild and I will restore it. Then the rest of humanity, all the Gentiles may seek the Lord. That's the reason I'm going to restore David's fallen shelter so that the rest of humanity, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Okay, one passage. Then we're done. This is a one verse I did not read to you yet, but it's quoted. Think about this, the beauty of this imagery. Let justice roll on like a river. See the picture? Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That was God's dream. 
fails God's dream. And that's what we are working hard to be as a church. Let justice, the care for the poor, the marginalized, the needy, the disenfranchised, let it roll on like a river. Okay? You know who quoted that? Martin Luther King in his speech, I Have a Dream. Back when they were wrestling with the whole concept of civil rights. He was key in that. That should be our dream. Let righteousness and justice roll out of this church like a river. Let it flow. Hold on to your political convictions. Just don't let them divide us. You see God's tender mercy here? That was for the righteous. The wicked, he ended. They're done. But the righteous continue. Father, thank you once again for being an incredible God. Thank you for giving us this long set of stories, this grand narrative of your great love. Your dream is simple. You just want a people who would love you freely. And Lord, that's us. I pray for those, uh, I'm proud of those people in Israel who were faithful at the end. They paid a tremendous price, Lord. And you tell us in Hebrews that their faith was so wonderful, the world is not worthy of them. Help us to be that kind of people that the world is not worthy of us. Our love is so deep and rich. Our commitment to justice and righteousness is so strong and powerful that we stand against whatever tide there is in our culture that wants to go in the other direction. Thank you.